So before we jump into today's episode, it's important that we acknowledge that this conversation was recorded on the land of the Tongva and Chumash peoples. Panelists joined us from colonized lands throughout North America. We recognize the Tongva, Chumash, and all indigenous nations, tribes, and peoples for being historical and continual caretakers of these lands. In three, two, one. Greetings, Ash family, and welcome back to another episode of the Ash Presidential Podcast. I am your co-host, Dr. Royal Johnson, Associate Professor of Higher Education and Social Work at the University of Southern California, where I'm also Director of Student Engagement for the USC Race and Equity Center. And shout out to my colleague, Sean Harper, uh, and others at the Race and Equity Center for being a co-sponsor. I am joined today by my amazing co-host, a newly elected <laughs> Ash board member, Dr. Felicia Commodore. Hi, everyone. I am uh, the other co-host of this podcast, Dr. Felicia Commodore, Associate Professor of Higher Education at Old Dominion University in Norfolk, Virginia, um, and excited uh, to, to be back for our our final episode. That's crazy. <laughs> Time has uh, flown by. It's crazy. Yeah. So, so just checking in with you, uh, Royal. How how are things going? How have things been? It has been a crazy semester. Obviously, it's been so much going on. I was traveling abroad the last two and a half weeks. I was in Singapore teaching as part of our global uh, doctorate program, and then it was my birthday. So, yeah, happy I'm birthday! Really uh, I, I flew to Bali from Singapore and spent a week there, and so that was oh, wow everything well, you, you imagine it was. <laughs> well, I am excited uh, that you were able to to celebrate your birthday and and be in Bali. I was not in Bali. Was I was uh, I was <laughs> in Norfolk and experiencing the wonderful uh, weather and living in a hurricane area, but... <laughs> <laughs> what they say, uh, bloom where you are planted, okay? <laughs> I try, or at least try to stay dry. Um, but it, uh, things of same here, just a busy, busy semester. Um, just trying to balance work, learning what it means to be an associate professor. Um, but 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 good times. But the semester is absolutely flying by, and I can't believe we're uh, at the end of the road here for the podcast, as well as almost to Ash Vegas. Can't yeah, that's what I was going to say. We are preparing to go to Vegas. Uh, <laughs> looking forward to seeing it. So, it's been so wonderful seeing mm -hmm. all of the tweets and commentary about the episodes, yeah. uh, which this or that folks enjoyed, <laughs> which, co you know, which host they enjoyed, which yes. participant. Uh, it's been wonderful to see all of the dialogue on social yeah. It's been really great uh, seeing all the feedback um, and and getting to see everyone's uh, uh, reactions, whether it be words or gifts, uh, <laughs> to, to the episodes. Right. <laughs> so it's been been great to see the Ash community um, really join in in our conversation. That's that's what we aim to do. So really, I've really seen a great couple stuff. people say, "Damn, Gina!" Da Remember? Yeah, "Damn, Gina" is like the new. <laughs> <laughs> the new thing now. Uh, shout out to Dr. <laughs> Zamani Gallagher. So. Right. So we are at the end of the road, y'all. We had no idea what we were doing. Neither of us had <laughs> no idea. 
a None. podcast before, so it's been wonderful to to learn how to do this. Uh, and you all have a front row seat to this. Uh, so it's been a really cool experience. Yeah. So um, though we're at the end of the road, and this is our last and final episode of this year's presidential podcast, um, just wanted to say that uh, thank you so much for joining us on this ride as we figured this all out and and uh, helping make this such a such a great time um this episode's going to be a little different from the other ones um and so we want to introduce you to several amazing scholars whose work really represent what it means to do humanizing research for and alongside various communities but before we jump into that it would not be right if we didn't start this episode off with a this or that. So <laughs> I'm, I'm going to go first. And <laughs> I have two that I'm going to ask Felicia. And if you know Felicia at all, that these would oh, be gosh. sort of characteristic. I'm nervous. So, Felicia is a really big Prince fan. Big. And I learned this many, <laughs> many, many moons ago. So Prince obviously has a number of amazing albums, but there are only two that I'm going to ask you to pick from. I already don't like this. (laughs) Purple Purple Rain Rain. Mm -hmm. or the self-titled Prince album. Oh, well, first of all, I think it's completely unfair and unjust and dehumanizing to make me have to pick (laughs) one Prince album. However, because my favorite Prince song is The Beautiful Ones, I'm going to have to go with Purple Rain. Nice. Yeah, I love The Beautiful Ones. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So I have a question for Royale. For those of you who do not know, Royale is a native of the great city of Chicago. West side of Chicago, to be very clear. There you go. Um, And so my question is Chicago House or Chicago Stat? Oh, that's a really, 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 really good one. I would say Chicago Step because I grew up in a family of steppers. I grew up uh-huh. going to stepping class on the weekends with my <laughs> aunts, my mom. That is like her social thing yes. that she does every weekend. House music was like, it is a thing. For sure, but it wasn't as big in my family. Mm. Uh, it wasn't until later when I met people and I really learned like what a house head is and the house picnic and so mm-hmm. forth. In my family, folks were unfortunately stepping in the name of love. Uh, <laughs> that was the thing to do. We did. It's okay. We're, we <laughs> we all have to grow. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so so you all heard that Chicago step. So that means at the Ash uh, reception. Yes. If you are trying to uh, not step in the name of love, but just step, uh, you can. You need to find uh, Dr. Johnson on the on the yes, dance floor. Happy, we'll be hosting uh, tutorials. <laughs> <laughs> so I have one for you. Okay. So Felicia is a really, really. Um, she, she she appreciates songwriters. I do. And you know, I don't know for for folks who know uh, who don't know this. Felicia listens. <laughs> 
who prepares for the Grammys each year by That's listening right. to I have a spreadsheet. all of the <laughs> songs and artists who are nominated. And she has this expansive spreadsheet where she <laughs> votes in advance that's in it the effort to tally and see what percentage she got correct um so that's how much she appreciates songwriters so i have two songwriters for your consideration okay babyface okay and quincy jones i recognize that they are out of each other's first of all first of all but the, dis- the disrespect for you giving me a question they are absolutely not contemporaries, which is unfair. But oh my! But the fact is... that I couldn't think of any contemporary for either of them led me to bring them together. I just, I this is, this is not right. And I, oh my gosh, Babyface or Quincy Jones? Okay, okay, okay. So, are we talking simply songwriting, or songwriting and producing? <sighs> Song for song. That's not answering my question. You see how you try to weasel? You can't weasel out of this. Cause because there's a there's a there's a nuance here. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. If we are talking about songs in totality, that means songwriting and production. Mm-hmm. I'm going to have to go with Quincy Jones because he's my favorite producer of all time. Mm-hmm. However, if we simply, if we separate producing and songwriting and just focus on songwriting, like lyrics, I can't believe I'm going to say this. I have to go with Babyface. Yeah. That was really hard. And I feel like my mentions are going to get destroyed. <laughs> But that's that's where I where I land. So Babyface is like my favorite songwriter. I mean, I love Stevie Wonder too, uh, amazing songwriter. But Quincy, like Quincy's range, over yes. from the movies to the film. But Quincy's Quincy. So this is why I had the caveat because Quincy's production. Right, like, cause, cause you gotta remember, he's a jazz person. Sarah Vaughn, I mean, Miles. So his uh, production Davis. is, yeah. to me, the 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 standard, right? Songwriting is good, but if I put lyric for lyric up against uh, Kenneth Babyface or Shady Face, as we found out, <laughs> Shady Face. Well, we learned after the first verses, right? <laughs> Uh, lyric for lyric, I think Babyface ekes out, but that that's tough. They're both amazing, though. They're yes, both amazing. Yes. Yeah. Okay. okay. So my last one for you. So um, those of you who don't know, uh, Rael is a voracious uh, reader of research, um, much me. more than myself. <laughs> and so don't judge me either. I hear all you out there judging me. Um, if you could choose, would you rather be a discussant at a conference mm-hmm. or review an article? Neither. <laughs> <laughs> what did wow. Evan say? <laughs> Those are the only two, <laughs> the only two options. Um, definitely review a paper. 
Okay. You know, I just so funny. I just had a board meeting the other day for JHE, and uh, shout out to Stephen Quay, new editor. Yes. We had like a whole session about how to properly review manuscripts and give feedbacks uh, in, yeah. in ways I've never experienced before. But yeah, it would definitely be reading a paper and, and giving feedback. I mean, the discuss it role. I've done it. I don't. I don't like sign up to do it unless somebody asked me to do it um (laughs) but it's not it's not something I'm jumping to do all the time I know some folks love it and you know I'm good on it (laughs) okay all right well all you journal editors out there you heard it do not please do not not. (laughs) oh r.i.p to your inbox okay all right well Uh, We hope uh, you all can sit in that. Please don't ruin our mentions or our inboxes after that, this or that. Nor invite Um, us to review any manuscripts right now. (laughs) The door is Oh, he's just modest. Um, So we're going to move into our episode and and, in our discussion for today. So during this podcast series, we have talked about how the past few years have brought issues regarding justice humanity, how organizations and our society at large historically and contemporarily treat various communities and identities. And we've witnessed the dismissal and erasure of certain groups, not only in voice and representation, but but also in research and practice. Uh, one of the groups that we've seen this occur to is the that of Indigenous peoples and more specifically Indigenous students. With U.S. society already systemically working to silence their voices, there have been efforts to push back against the silencing of Indigenous folks in higher education research and practice. Dr. Stephanie Waterman, professor at University of Toronto, explores these themes in her research. Dr. Waterman, from her understanding and identity as an Indigenous person, was open to sharing her insight as to what humanizing higher education means to her. When we spoke to her, she shared the following perspective. A humanizing future for higher education would consider our responsibilities to watch out for each other's well-being. That includes creation. Higher education worries about enrollments during a viral pandemic, during the epidemic of gunning down of innocent people, attacks on women and LGBTQ2S people, war, and the devastating destruction of Mother Earth. Where are our responsibilities? The erasure of relationships to creation, the land, water, air, and our animal relatives is a cause of our suffering now. I see a humanizing future as one that considers our environmental impact, that in turn impacts our health and well-being, and even our very future. There is no higher education without land, water, air, and our non-human relatives. Higher education and market forces have erased from our decision-making and awareness our precarious relationship to the forces that keep us alive. Our relationships to each other as human beings have been erased in favor of competition and ratings. A humanizing future would strengthen our relationships, bring visibility to all of us, and focus on strengths of our diverse communities. In an article about Haudenosaunee administrators, I share how our worldviews and emphasis on using a good mind 
was their underlying philosophy and their work with students. The administrators assumed goodness in students and worked to maintain good relationships with them, communities, and institutions. We can all do that by listening, including listening to Mother Earth and embracing respect. I close with a quote from the late Tatadaho, Leon Shenandoah Onondaga Eel Clan. He says, the creator made everything equal. Human beings are the same to the creator as every other living thing. But he gave human beings the responsibility to watch out for the rest of his creation. That makes us the guardians. Look what we've done. Instead of being guardians, some people have learned how to destroy because of greed. The animals and fish and the birds don't do that. They just go on with their duties. So we've got to help change people's minds so that they will protect the land, so that their seventh generation from now will have some place to live. Thank you. In conversations around equity and justice in higher education, college student athletes are not always thought of or centered. For years, however, there's been serious concerns about the issue of financial compensation for amateur athletes. Given that the NCAA generates roughly 1 billion in revenue annually, and the most revenue generating sports like football and basketball tend to be overrepresented with black students and those from low income backgrounds. And given that fewer than 2% of college athletes will go on to play a professional sport, there've also been some concerns about career coaching and life preparation. We chatted with Dr. Wayne Black, who is an assistant professor of sports administration at the University of Cincinnati. Here's what he had to say. I specifically focus on humanizing college athletes in higher ed. And that starts by my research. And at the core of my research is equity and justice in college athletics. I'm a former college athlete and I was a college coach. And so those things are really important to me. So how do I actually do it though? So I'm very intentional about how I research college athletics. So I focus on systemic issues as a way to help make policy change. And then when I am focusing on focusing on a specific college athlete identity, for example, Black college athletes, I, I try to make sure that I'm not just viewing Black college athletes as football or men's basketball players. There's a wide spectrum of Black college athletes. Me being myself, I was a college wrestler and I'm Black, but people always think that I play football. Um, another way I do that is by researching topics around college athletes that may not actually have been studied yet. For example, my dissertation focused on esport, collegiate esports, and understanding who is participating and who is getting access to college through esports. And so I really try to use my research to highlight different inequities in college athletics and try and get policy makers, administrators thinking about these new things. For example, I have a paper called Black Tax, which is in the Journal of Sport Management. And um, I co-authored that with Dr. Willis Jones, who I met at ASH in 2019. And what we looked at was, are historically black colleges, universities getting paid equitably for playing in guarantee games? And guarantee games are just games where 
a high resource school plays a low resource school and the high resource school pays the low resource school a bunch of money with the assumption that the higher resource school should win that game. And so that really helped to show how HBCUs were not getting paid as much for playing in guaranteed games, but they played in way more of them. So there was a financial inequity. And then I'm also doing some work now on college athlete food and housing insecurity um, because the assumption oftentimes is that uh, college athletes don't face these experiences. And, and so I'm really focused on trying to make sure college athletes are at the center of some of these issues that are facing higher education and that their experiences aren't being left out. Um, and I really try to advocate and amplify college athlete voices so that they are considered. You know, one thing um, about student athletes as I talk to my um, colleagues like Dr. Black who do research on student athletes is all the assumptions that we make about um, student athletes and who they are. And we we find that with various groups that happens. And so one of, one of the interesting experiences, I think, in navigating the academy in higher education is how so many assumptions are made about who you are, what you know, where you came from, your background and such. And uh, though this can often be related to more visible identities, such as race, gender, et cetera, this also happens with identities that are not so visible. Uh, one of these sometimes hidden identities is being from a rural community. As a product of a rural area myself, navigating spaces that may diminish the very things you celebrate about yourself and your community, or even go as far as to use those things as tools of isolation, these subtle practices can sometimes lead students and faculty alike feeling like they don't belong in the academy, um, a form of dehumanization, if you will. Dr. Sanja Ardwan, whose work centers on rural student populations, class, and culture, attempts to bring to light these issues in her work. We decided to chat with Sanja and find out from her viewpoint what humanizing higher education means to her and how she has taken her own background and used it in her approach to her work to advocate for more, more holistic human-centered research and more human-centered publications. When I think about how to humanize the higher education experiences for those who are involved in the academy, so students, faculty, staff, other employees, um, I often think about first, how am I being human? How am I recognizing my own limitations and fallibility and errors uh, and not hiding that from other people um, and being transparent about some of those things, uh, as well as some of the things I like to think I'm good at. Um, but I think being human is one of the first and foremost things I consider uh, in that process, because if I'm not willing to be human, how am I willing, how can I be asking other people uh, to be human in that process? Uh, I think for me as a researcher, which is sort of a new um, identity, even that I would uh, call myself um, more of a scholar practitioner is what I would use. But I think about the fact that uh, I grew up in a Cajun culture that was focused on stories and storytelling. And so that really made me drawn to qualitative research where um, 
we do sort of focus on people's stories and um, providing platforms by which people can share those stories in both individual uh, ways as well as some, some collective ways. Um, and so I am drawn to that qualitative piece where even with confidentiality, people might get to choose their pseudonyms or um, have sort of names attached to stories, I think humanizes uh, part of that process. Uh, I also think that in collecting stories and sharing stories, um, it's thinking about uh, how do we provide opportunities for humanization through nuance and complexity. Um, so not presenting things as, as a monolithic, um, even though we may look at trends and themes uh, that are happening uh, in some of the areas that uh, we research, which for me would be um, first-generation college students, uh, also first-generation graduate students, and then first-generation faculty and staff members uh, alongside folks um, who identify as coming from poor and working class backgrounds, uh, alongside um, elements around folks who grew up in rural areas, um, is really thinking about we can sometimes look at those in monolithic ways. And my hope um, is that through some of our research and scholarship, um, you know, being able to do that alongside colleagues who identify in similar ways to me, but also different ways to me, that we're able to provide publications that show that folks um, who are first gen or come from poor and working class backgrounds or come from rural areas are not necessarily one thing, uh, that those uh, identities and lived experiences are nuanced and complex and uh, heterogeneous in many ways. And for me, that is part of humanization is saying, hey, this is not the same for everybody. Like, yes, there may be trends and themes here, but um, there's nuances and complexities as well that it's important that we pay attention to. Um, alongside research, I think it's also important to be human as a faculty member in our teaching um, and in our shared learning experiences with colleagues and students. And for me, that has looked like a lot of different things over time. But um, one, I think first and foremost is uh, knowing that students uh, are people uh, and that they have lives outside of their roles uh, as students. And so how are we providing individualized support to students uh, as life happens for them, right? Um, as they uh, become caregivers, as they take on new roles uh, in their careers, um, as they become partnered, uh, what does all of that mean? And so uh, ensuring that they are seen and heard and valued and supported um, as individual people um, I think for me is part of the humanization process along with adopting practices like ungrading and then incorporating components uh, into teaching content uh, that show issues as human. So whether that is uh, using documentaries or podcasts or guest lectures or panels, um, helping things go sort of from broad and, and theoretical uh, to practical and applicable uh, for me is also part of humanization that there we are people and uh, we need to figure out um, who we are in the process of our careers and also how some of this content plays out for us uh, in the roles we hold in the spheres of influence that we have. And so for me, humanization is considering um, how are we people first and foremost uh, in our careers? Do we see our own humanity and how do we invite other people's humanity? Uh, thinking about uh, research, particularly for me, um, for folks who may have been historically excluded and marginalized or silenced um, and providing platforms for them to share their stories in nuanced and complex ways. And then also thinking about our teaching and how uh, we bridge the theory and practice and how we also um, support students in ways that help them get to where they're trying to go as well. 
So the next scholar we had an opportunity to chat with also focuses on a student population who has been too often overlooked and relegated in higher education. Those are students who've been impacted by the criminal punishment system. Some of you may know this, but it's estimated that roughly 80 million Americans have criminal records. Wow, 80 million Americans. And what we know from research, some of which is my own, is that they, that experience has enormous challenges uh, for students uh, as it relates to accessing employment, accessing things like education. The good news is that there is some momentum nationally uh, among higher education leaders and others to address some of these structural impediments, uh, such as having disclosure um, on the college admissions application of one's criminal record, right? Or having access to Pell Grants or other forms of financial aid to fund their education, but there's still a great deal of work uh, to do. And one scholar who is working on behalf of students with criminal records is Dr. Melissa Abeda, who is an assistant professor at the University of Texas Rio Grande Valley. Here's what she had to say about the work that she's been engaged in. As scholar practitioners, imagine a student who is formerly incarcerated or system impact and is navigating not only the challenges of higher education, but the carceral system. Oftentimes, students from this population are left out of equity conversations when we talk about historically marginalized communities. Specifically, I wanted to share some of the findings from a recent study, because when I spoke with formerly incarcerated students, I was able to ask them about the disparities that they encountered while enrolled at our institutions, and I would like to briefly share findings in a narrative using pseudonyms. So first, I would like to introduce you to Anthony. Anthony was admitted to a public research university from a local community college. He shared how difficult it was to secure housing. Aside from housing affordability, he dealt with housing discrimination from his appearance and was rejected housing on numerous occasions. He said, quote, I had about $1,500 and I was trying to find housing. I didn't know how I was going to do it. I'd applied for scholarships, but I was down to live in my car. I applied to on-campus housing, but I found this place. I got on the lease. I got a co-signer who vouched for me. I had everything lined up, but three to four days later, I was denied housing. So right now I'm living in hiding on a cot. And because of my criminal record, I'm forced to live a certain way. Honestly, it makes me feel bad. I'm supposed to hide my tattoos and hide where I'm living so I don't get kicked out. Anthony shared how being stereotyped affect his housing opportunity as a formerly incarcerated student. And as scholar practitioners, we're aware of how basic needs affect our students. But an important takeaway here are the layers to housing insecurities for formerly incarcerated students. Next, I wanna introduce you to Ruben. Ruben was a psychology major with a 3.6 GPA and he aspired to obtain a master's degree and he spent 15 years in federal prison. When I spoke with Ruben, he described how he was completely aware of his past of being formally incarcerated, but now he embraces his identity of being a college student. He said, quote, when it comes to college, the identity is for you to be a student. I'm no longer a gang member or a prison gang member. I'm studying to be a psychologist. All of the students I spoke with shared this awareness of transforming their carceral identity into a student identity. And one way that they do that is through engagement with student organizations on campus. Like Ruben, these students receive peer-to-peer -peer mentoring and through the student experience, they're able to become socialized um, into a college setting. So a question I ask you to reflect on is, how is your campus engaging the student population? Are there student organizations and funding opportunities for them? What are their admissions or faculty support for formerly incarcerated students like on your campus? Thinking about Anthony and Ruben and all the formerly incarcerated students on our collective campuses, imagine what it would look like for our college campus to be welcoming to the student population. I offer the following reflections. 
First, reflect on the visibility and language used at your institution for formerly incarcerated individuals. Is there a virtual space for them on the institutional website where they can find information on resources? Is the language used to identify them anti-deficit? Um, next, I would ask students, like think about students like Anthony who experiences challenges with food and housing insecurities. Reflect how this student population is part of your institutional equities plans. Lastly, as formerly incarcerated students have found your education and they have their basic needs met, how are they involved on campus? Is there a student organization on your campus specifically for them? You know, many formerly incarcerated students may have computer literacy challenges. Is there a center or staff dedicated to help with supplemental education uh, programming for them? Thank you. So we, we've talked about rural students, we talked about justice-involved students, and, and these are all identities, again, right, that we, we can't see when we, when we um, first encounter folks. And as we continue to speak about identities that aren't as easily seen, there has been a group of students who for a while now have not only been made invisible, but have at times had to actually hide themselves for their own safety. DACA students, which stands for Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, are students who entered the United States from another country before their 16th birthday and before 2007, have been continually residing and attending school in the U.S., and have graduated high school and, or attained their GED. One would think that because these students have been given the status, they would be protected while in college, but this has not necessarily been the case. Uh, with various institutional state and federal policies um, at play, these students often have to navigate college with the added pressure of what it means to be undocumented in higher education. Dr. Stephen Ramirez has engaged in some great work centering this particular population of students. And when asking him how he views humanizing higher education and what this may mean for the communities he works with, he shared this. As someone who came from a mixed status household, immigration rights and educational equity for racially minoritized students who are undocumented has always been a priority of me, right? When I'm thinking through humanizing these people and their experiences, you know, there's a lot that comes to mind, which includes thinking of the whole person, right? Their challenges, their needs, their knowledge, their skills, and their assets. Some of the things that I do in my practices, right, is to work with and alongside these communities and not work on them. You know, I think of myself as a friend and a mentor to many of these these uh, brilliant scholars, right? I act as a reference for scholarship jobs, graduate school opportunities. When uh, completing any of my RRBs and projects that I lead that focus on these communities because they've been targeted for so many years, including, you know, in today's society as a result of anti-immigrant sociopolitical climates, um, I request to only receive verbal consent from these uh, student collaborators versus written consent, right? Um, I've been working on a longitudinal study since 2018, which actually began as my dissertation study uh, alongside these communi uh, communities, specifically uh, student activists and, and those who participate in resistance efforts um, for educational equity and immigrant rights and undocumented and DACA student rights, right? Um, you know, I lobbied to the state legislators alongside these collegians, right? Part of my analysis process is gathering all of these folks and myself together, right, to have conversations about what are we identifying within the data, right? So they're very much a part of the analysis process because I really want them 
and their experiences to be at the forefront of what I am pushing out for publications or workshops or presentations as a result of this study and other studies, right? Um, and they get, or they have had opportunities to give me a say on what they want me to present on and what they want me to write about, right? Which is the most salient parts of their identities and or their experiences, right? Um, I think it's really important to compensate them for their time, work, energy, skills, and assets, right? So for any project, I apply for different grants, um, some of which that I've obtained. Recently, I've obtained an ACPA NASPA Foundation grants, a Spencer Postdoc Fellowship um, to push these projects forward, right? But also to compensate them via gift cards for their time and energy as, uh, you know, collaborators. And um, specifically, I'm working on a new project that looks at the postgraduate graduation experiences and uh, preparatory experiences for recently graduated undocumented students. And I plan to hire starting this uh upcoming academic semester and undocumented undergraduate students to help assist with that study, right? Again, I believe it's really important to advocate for and on behalf and with these folks at federal, state, and institutional levels. I have remained um, an active uh, selection committee member for a scholarship that caters to undocumented college students, right? And at my current institution um, at the University at Buffalo, I developed a course called Race, Racism, and Undocumented Collegians in Higher Education, which really just solely focuses on these immigrant communities, right? Bringing their stories and assets and skills to the forefront of conversation in the classroom setting, right? Um, I truly appreciate the opportunity to speak briefly about some of my experiences with and alongside undocumented students as a faculty member, as a researcher, um, as a friend and as a mentor. I appreciate you all doing this and thanks again. For so many of the student populations that we've been talking about, uh, those who are sort of institutionally marginalized, those who are underrepresented or oftentimes hidden, we know that the pandemic exacerbated precarity for so many of them. Uh, and one particular group of population uh, that this next scholar focuses on is international students. Think about the difficulty associated with living and studying abroad during a time that was marked with such global uncertainty that coupled with issues of social isolation, uh, racism, discrimination, fueled in part by our governmental leaders, uh, travel bans, legal status issues, uh, and also uh, just a host of significant challenges. This is the work that Dr. Katie Koo who is an assistant professor at the University of Georgia is committed to examining and bringing attention to. We chatted with her about the ways in which she is working to humanize the experiences of international students despite these challenges. Here's what she had to say. As a researcher who is studying underrepresented students' unique college experiences, mental health and well-being, including international students, with my scholarly work, I support and advocate underrepresented population and marginalized individuals' experiences and their future path, especially for international students and scholars. To humanize higher education for international students and scholars, I work on research on international students and provide support programs and presentations to make this population more visible and make their voices heard. With my research and practices, I demystify international students' unique experiences, challenges, and struggles 
such as their acculturation process, acculturated stress, social isolation, having limited resources and support systems, English proficiency, discrimination, and racism. I also unfold some hidden stories of international students' experiences that U.S. educators and U.S. practitioners do not know or do not understand. In addition, as I notice a trend in framing international students as vulnerable, such as they are not actively seeking help, they have higher rates of mental distress, they are more likely to be depressed, blah, blah, blah. So most studies focus on international students' difficulties and problems, not on their surround, surrounding environments, systematic barriers or institutional limitations. Researchers rarely talk about whether US campuses are welcoming to international students, if they are friendly enough to international students or whether faculty advisors have the culturally, cultural competency to support their in, international advisees. I support international students by reporting that it's not their fault, but I argue that US-centric campus culture, US-centric social norms, US-centric language, strict US immigration law, and public view on perpetual foreigner may impact international students' stress, which ultimately affect their difficulties. In my other side of research, I also report how international students are strong and great strong with great resilience as they strive to thrive in a foreign country away from their family and primary support system by surviving an unfamiliar culture and speaking their second languages to be successful. Therefore, I believe that I give hope and positive messages to international community and I provide how student affairs, student affairs professionals and faculty who work with international students can provide culturally sensitive and culturally responsive cares and support for international students. I emphasize great potentials, energies, resources, and contributions that international students bring to US higher education and show how to help them to feel welcome and supported in a foreign country. I believe all these hopeful messages and positive influences are what I'm doing to humanize higher education. Thank you for listening. So the challenges that the DACA students, undocumented students, international students, and all of our students really must navigate highlight the ways that laws and policies can work to not only make pursuing higher education difficult for some students, but also act as a way of enforcing and reinforcing racism and discrimination within the ways that higher education does what it does. Dr. Oyan Poon, Program Officer with the Spencer Foundation and Associate Professor Affiliate in the School of Education at Colorado State University and a faculty affiliate in the College of Education at the University of Maryland College Park, highlights this in her work regarding bias in the college admissions process. Right now, affirmative action is back on the docket at the U.S. Supreme Court. And I just, I remember being an undergrad and going to Washington, D.C. to march regarding affirmative action. I can't believe we're, we're right back here so many years later. Uh, this has also brought up the conversation of race conscious admissions and processes and how do college admissions processes do and do not humanize college applicants. We were able to catch up with Dr. Poon and hear her take on what humanizing higher education means to her 
and how processes do or do not contribute to humanizing higher education. By just simply saying that um, in my work, I'm always in relationship um, with people, with communities, and I'm always in conversations. And over the years I've learned, um, and through what I'm talking about today, I really wanna highlight that um, I uh, always wanna do my scholarly work in partnership with um, practitioners, with students, with various communities. Um, over many years, I've been studying the racial politics of Asian Americans, college admissions, and particularly policies of race conscious admissions or affirmative action um, with my colleagues, Liliana Garces, Janelle Wong, and Mike Wawin. Um, we've been writing and submitting amicus briefs on behalf of social scientists um, to the federal courts and to the Supreme Court this coming fall 2022. Um, defending diversity in um, the SFFA versus Harvard lawsuit. Um, and so for many years, I've been studying how Asian Americans in particular participate um, in these legal and policy debates. Um, and in 2016, I uh, conducted a study to really ask Asian Americans why um, they either agreed or disagreed or felt somewhere in the mix in the middle um, between in this legal and policy debate over whether or not race conscious admissions should be or not be. Um, and what I found is that no matter what side of the policy debate these folks were on, these Asian Americans that I interviewed by and large didn't seem to have a strong understanding, a fact-based understanding of how race conscious admissions was actually practiced. Um, and so that was a big learning for me. And I wrote an op-ed in the conversation in 2018, kind of summarizing some of that work um, for a public audience. And the editor, uh, Jamal Abdul-Aleem, um, when I said to him, you know, it was really surprising was that these folks who are active in this policy debate, they don't actually understand how race conscious admissions works. And Jamal simply asked me, but does anyone know exactly how it works? And I, being a scholar, a researcher, I went to the research literature and there really is a tenuous understanding. And the biggest question is, is there a practice-based understanding? Do researchers and practitioners have the same understanding of how these systems work? And I think that there is a gap there in the research if researchers creating publications and theories and models are not grounded and in conversation, in relationship with people who are actually working these systems, leading these systems, the practitioners themselves. Um, so that simple question by Jamal, um, an education writer and journalist, really set me on a path to really focus primarily on, well, then how do selective colleges and universities actually practice race conscious holistic admissions. Um, I was really curious, I've been really curious about the racial logics and how things are actually working within these systems. Now, when we study systems and we're really after uh, transformations for social justice and equity goals, we can sometimes forget, and I will put myself in this too, we can, I can forget I have forgotten sometimes that there are actually workers, people behind these systems that we're critiquing. And what we 
really forget sometimes is that some of these people share our interests for social justice and equity and have a deep desire to change these systems. And so this positions them to be really great partners um, for research to actually create deep impacts, for research to really create impact. Um, trust matters. And that's a key point um, in a book that my um, colleague, Mike Bastato and I are have co-edited and is coming out this fall 2022 out of Harvard Education Press called Rethinking College Admissions, Research-Based Practice and Policy. Some of the contributors in this book are uh, practitioners themselves in the college admissions space. And we're really proud of this book and hope folks enjoy it, learn from it, continue to um, grow in this field of research and considering and centering um, these authentic, genuine relationships and partnerships in research. We've been talking about a number of marginalized uh, or multiply marginalized student groups who are often invisible on campus simply because folks refuse to see them or prioritize them. This next scholar has been studying two important but overlooked groups, those who engage in sex work, so college students who engage in sex work, as well as those who are fat bodied. Check out what Dr. Tara Stewart, assistant professor at Iowa State University had to say about their work. So to think about how I humanize uh, students, faculty, staff, um, and higher ed in my work, I think we have to think about the concept of human. And I don't have a lot of time, but I will say there are some theories, for example, like Afro-pessimism that call into question the very category of the human who has access to that designation and what it means for our possibilities and our futures. But I'm going to set that aside for a moment uh, and for the sake of conversation, say that um, that all people have access to humanity or should have access to humanity in equal ways. And there's two definitions I stumbled upon because I really wanted to think about what does it mean to humanize. And Oxford English Dictionary first defines it as to make human, to portray or endow with human characteristics, qualities, or attributes, to represent in human form, to adapt to human use. I don't like this definition because I think what it says is, is that uh, the people that might be uh, engaged in the work that I do, uh, who's at the center of the inquiries that I engage, that they're not already people, but, but somehow through the process of research, uh, we are making them human. I don't really like that. The second definition feels closer to sort of what I think I do, and that is to make more humane, uh, to refine, to make more gentle or tender or to soften. And I think that's really beautiful because I study people, populations and ideas that are in the margins of the margins. What that means is, particularly those of us that are um, interested and embrace equity and justice, when we think we have our arms around all the issues, my work is asking the question, who is still missing and why? And what I found is that within the margins of the margins, right, so maybe some of these equity and justice issues that are not e as easily accessible uh, to people's understanding or consciousnesses, uh, that there's this associated stigma. So for example, I study um, uh, issues of fat phobia and sizeism. And so what society says is that fat bodies are not the way bodies are supposed to be. So then therefore any negative experiences you have uh, is your own fault is something that can 
that you can change. And so therefore it's not a justice issue. You need to change your body. Uh, similarly to the other large area of my work is I look at the experiences of people engaged in sex work and erotic labor. And what society says is, is that is wrong, that that is bad. It is immoral. It is uh, against religious and, and some spiritual principles. And therefore, if you have negative experiences around that, uh, that is your fault. You should do something else and become clean and to, and to become whole. And so for me, to make higher education and post-secondary contexts in the world more gentle or tender or soft for these people is to work alongside with them to help render these visible, render visible these issues as justice issues, the justice issues that they are. Uh, you know, to think about sex work and erotic labor as labor, as work, as labor under capitalism. And what does that mean um, for what they are owed? What does that mean for their particular experiences as they try to uh, make meaning and survive these particular systems of dominance, just like the rest of us? And so I think to make uh, more gentle or tender or soften is to invite them into the process uh, to abandon participant frameworks or participant as language in my own work, I use collaborator and I uh, give as robust financial incentives as possible. And I ask the people part of the studies with me, where do you want your stories to go? Who do you want to hear them? How do you want to hear them? And most importantly, I uh, am alongside them in the work. I am proud and I don't uh, shy away. And I, um, try to illustrate and try to make sure that my praxis is aligned with my sort of espoused politic that I am just as proud to do uh, work uh, with fat folks and with sex workers as uh, many fat people are proud to be who they are and comfortable in their bodies and as proud as many people engage in, in sex work and erotic labor are proud that they are able to do that work and to keep themselves safe and to make the living that they need um, to be well um, uh, more often than not. And so I think it's important. And I think if we think about what does it mean for our work to make more gentle or tender or soft, particularly for minoritized communities who often don't get to have lives of softness, of gentleness, of tenderness, uh, because of the system of dominance and the system of power, I think that is really an important consideration for us to think about. And what does it mean for us to invite them more fully into our processes, to stand bold and unashamed uh, with them as we do this work uh, and as we reject neoliberalism, we reject white supremacist capitalist patriarchy, we reject uh, any of the logics that stigmatize particular groups, respectability, uh, all of those things, right? Um, and so I think the more that I disrupt, the more that I kick around the hard and cold and rocky soil that higher education's uh, foundation rests on, then the softer I'm able to make that soil for something um, for something to, to be fruitful, for something to blossom, and for something to grow from it for the people who have historically been denied uh, that gentleness, that tenderness, and that softness. Wow, we really um, appreciate what Dr. Stewart had to share and in, in, in those very enlightening words about how we think about um, students and and humanizing higher education and what that means. And, and to all of our scholars who took the time out to, to talk to us about all these different 
populations of students that that make up this ecosystem that we call um, higher education. And hopefully we can reflect on uh, the things they shared with us, the things they made us think about as we move forward in serving these students and advocating um, on behalf of them and creating and um, recreating and reimagining policies and practices that impact all of these various identities and populations in the work that we do. So as you all know, we usually wrap up our conversations by asking our guests one question. How are you finding joy or what is bringing you joy right now? So since this is our last episode of the series, I think it's time we turn the question on ourselves. So, Royale, how are you finding joy in this moment in your life? That's a really good question. Um, and it's one that I've been thinking about a lot, especially you know, you know this as we both have transitioned from assistant to associate and earned tenure and promotion. I've been sitting with what it means to reclaim joy for myself because I feel like the first leg of my career, that assistant professor journey, um, sort of robbed me in many ways of lots of things and experiences that I would have otherwise engaged in. And so, one way that I'm centering joy is by resting. Rest has been a radical act of self-care and preservation. And so that looks like not trying to publish five or six articles this year. And it looks like <laughs> going to Bali and enjoying <laughs> birthday, right? That is joyful like to me. It looks like um, all the things that make me smile and and, and being in community uh, and Joy will be in a couple of weeks going to Ash and, and seeing you and seeing other friends uh, and being intentional about prioritizing those relationships uh, and people in my life. That's one way that I'm creating joy. I also have an, a, an amazing three pound Yorkie. Some folks know. <laughs> Hi, Tiger. On Twitter, Tiger brings me joy. Uh, and so I, I'm spending more time with him. Uh, how about you? How are you finding yeah. joy? Um. So, so it's interesting. Uh, it's November. November is a tricky month uh, for me um, uh, in, in transparency. Uh, uh, for those who may not have known, I lost my mother um, in uh, 2021. And uh, her birthday is in November as well as was my parents' anniversary. Um, and so November is a tricky month for me, as well as um, one of my closest friends um, growing up in high school also um, uh, died when I was a freshman in high school, I mean, college um, in November around Thanksgiving. So this whole month is usually very tricky for me emotionally. Um, and so I, I realized that um, I have to intentionally or be intentional about finding joy um, at a time where there's so much um, that uh, reminds me or triggers or stirs up uh, my grief. And so for me, um, uh, what is helping me find joy during this time is really being um, intentional about celebrating and being in community with uh, the people that are here um, uh, in honor of the people that are not here. So I um, am putting a lot of energy into 
um, being with my, uh, you know, being in community with my sorority sisters and my church and my friends and, and looking forward to Ash as a being, um, you know, in company with people that care about me, um, people that I admire and that I like to sit around and think with. Um, and so, um, that is bringing me joy. And then also, um, though sometimes they, they, they want to stress me out. I think they get a kick out of it. I'm also finding joy in, in the students that I'm working with, mm. um, particularly the ones that are dissertating right now and watching the process of them discovering knowledge and figuring out who they are as scholars and um, just watching that process and, and, and watching them emerge um, as their scholarly selves is, is really bringing me, me joy right now, reminding me um, why I do what I do and why I got into this crazy world <laughs> of doing research and, and being a faculty member um, in, in the field of higher education. So, so that's, that's what I'm doing right now to find joy. So first, sending you lots of love uh, and energy yeah. and to, to others as well who are grieving. I know the holiday season can be difficult. I also lost someone uh, really important mm -hmm. this year and the holiday, this will be the first holiday uh, without. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm sending lots of love and light to all of us who are in this season and learning how to exist uh, in this sort of space. Um, yeah, and let us all remember that when we're down at the ash and as we move day to day in our work and our communities that, you know, so many of us have um, experienced loss in the season. Um, and so to be kind and, and to to um, try to be uh, good colleagues to each other um, and, yeah. and, you know, remember that we are all human and all experiencing so many things at the same time. Yeah, it made me think, you know, like I, I always prided my, some, myself as someone who always made deadlines and sort of, you know, was attentive to details in that way. I have never needed as much grace in mm -hmm. this period of time than ever. I can't recall a time ever <laughs> in my life. Right. Everything is late. Everything is delayed. Every email <laughs> is weeks behind. And right. I remember being used to being so frustrated by people like, why can't they just respond to an email? Why, like, because at the end of the day, it's not as important as we think it is right. when so much is happening personally and uh, in the world. So give folks grace. You never yeah. know what folks are experiencing. So absolutely. Keep that in mind. Okay. Well, we have just one more order of business because I can't let us go without sharing our last Scholars soundtrack selection. So those of you who've been along with us for this ride know that at the end of each episode, we like to select a song for our Scholar soundtrack. It's a song that came to mind as we reflect on the day's conversations. And today, and really throughout this whole series, we have been discussing the diverse experiences by diverse groups of people who we find in higher education, um, those who have been touched by higher education and those who have been impacted by higher education. And at the core of all of those experiences, all the work, all the expertise, all of the everything, all of us are just everyday people traversing through this project called U.S. Higher Education. And for that reason, the song that came to mind today is Sly in the Family Stones, Everyday People. Because for all we're striving to accomplish, 
for all we're trying to do to move forward and achieve in higher education. What we can never forget is that there are everyday people whose lives are impacted by what we do. And because of that, it is imperative that we honor their humanity by continuing to strive and humanize higher education. So, Royale, can you believe this is the end? <laughs> no, this is wild. Listen, Great. we had no, I, I mentioned this before, we had no yeah. clue what we were doing. Neither of us had ever, I mean, we've been on podcasts before. We've never right. realized, produced, written scripts <laughs> right. on podcasts before. Thank you so much, President Joy Gaston Gale. Yay! Enough of us uh, <laughs> to, to invite us to do this together. <laughs> I would not have wanted to do with anyone else. So thank you for being an amazing collaborator and co-host. Same. It has been a wonderful ride. I know it's only six episodes. It, it, it has flown by more. Maybe there will be another season of the Ash Presidential Podcast. If you want another season of the Ash Presidential oh. Podcast, tweet and at the association, tweet the president. Yes. <laughs> and make your request known. Let them know, let them, let them know what the people want. Uh, well, this, I agree, Royale. This has been an experience beyond anything I could have ever imagined. Um, I, I don't know that I woke up uh, in 2022 and was like, yes, I'm going to be hosting a podcast. So, um, yeah, and I and it's been great hosting it um, with you and, and, and feel like we're having a conversation with friends. Um, it's been really great. Thank you also. Um, I want to thank uh, President... Uh, joy uh, for um, putting your faith in us and believing we went and ruined the name of Ash. Yes. <laughs> so, we, hope uh, we didn't embarrass you too much. <laughs> right. Um, and thank you to everyone who's played a part to, to um, our fearless executive director, Jason, yes. who Jason. kept us, you know, on track and, and kind of, you know, slightly slapped our wrists when we were late with things. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Grace, 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 right. Grace, Grace. Right. Um, to to uh, Dr. Sean Harper and yes. the Center for Race and Equity at um, USC. Thank you for all of your support um, in in doing this. It's been invaluable, and also thanks to the people at Wondery. Yes, who uh, studios. Us. Yes, who hosted us, who helped us editing all the Our engineers. editor, Adrian, who has yes. been wonderful. Thank you, Adrian. Amazing. Um, all the people who played a role in pulling this off to all the staff at Ash who helped get it out and tweet and post and yes. and all of the things. We couldn't have done um, this without you. And, and, and then lastly, but not least, Thank you to everyone who tuned in, who clicked, who shared, who, um, you know, commented. Um, we really, really appreciate it. Um, so podcast is nothing, just people talking if nobody listens to it. So we really appreciate that. Um, and so, yes, I'd like to thank all of you who took the time to listen to the series without any clue what we were about to do. Yes. It's been an honor to be in community with you in this way over the past few weeks. Make sure to share the series with your families, your friends, 
other higher education nerds. Use it in your classrooms. There are associated readings with each episode. There's music and media that you can incorporate also to examine different topics. We hope that there is some utility to this. This is why we wanted to do a podcast, something different, uh, something that would sort of be a living and standalone uh, sort of medium. Um, and we would love to hear about how you're using it as well. Yeah. Uh, future. So let us know. Drop us a, a note on Twitter or email. Yes. And if you start to miss us, you can always pull us up on your favorite place to find podcasts and hit that replay button. Yes. Uh, <laughs> um, but until uh, this happens again, if it happens again, in the words of that classic uh, semi-sonic song, it's closing time. Every new beginning comes from uh, some other beginnings end. And though we won't be here um, in your, you know, earphones uh, in the coming weeks, we will be in Las Vegas in just a few weeks. And we can continue all this great thought exchange and all of this sharing of ideas and philosophies down at the ash annual meeting at every and open bar <laughs> <laughs> Find me it, at every even the ones with the tickets <laughs> we'll take the tickets too um and maybe even some of you at down at the casino who'll be with me but anyway um <laughs> we you know we can we can be scholars anywhere uh we can't wait to have more combos um and more thought sharing as we come together as a community to continue figuring out how we humanize higher education. Royale, you have anything you wanna? No, I'll just say it's not it's, it's not a goodbye, it's a see you later. Uh, yeah. We look forward to engaging with you in different ways soon. Thank you for everything. Okay, so with that, uh, see you down at the ash. And until then, I'm Felicia. I'm Royale. Keep, Keep it, it human. Ciao. Bye. <laughs>